Welcome to Season 3, Episode 1 of Swift Over Coffee. I'm Paul Hudson. My name is Michaela Karen. And in this episode, we discuss how to continue learning and growing in your career. That's always something every a lot of interviewers say that they look for at junior developers is willingness to learn. Because when you really think about it, nobody in this industry has more than 16 years of experience specifically developing iOS apps. We asked folks what they are looking forward to at WWDC 23. Xcode Copilot. This is just laziness again, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Plus, developers are lazy. <laughs> she said that. No, I did not say that. <laughs> so, Michaela, just just briefly, Michaela, introduce yourself. Who are you? I mean, I know who you are, but just for listeners who don't know you necessarily, who are you? Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Michaela Karen, and I am an iOS developer. I currently work at Lickability. They, we are a fully remote software studio. So if anyone's looking for an app, let me know. We can build one for you. But as there's mostly developers listening to this, it's probably not going to happen because we can all <laughs> write our own apps. Um, but I um, create content on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Mastodon, I will be on Blue Sky very soon, um, but I just tweet and talk about iOS development on the internet all the time. And lots of Vapor too, right? Yes, I did do a tutorial series about Vapor and then later spoke at the Serverside Swift conference mm. that was in London, um, and that was super fun. <laughs> of course, in spare time, there's lots and lots of happy hour, right? Yes, I am one of the organizers of iOS Dev Happy Hour. This is a monthly online meetup for iOS developers. And it doesn't matter if you're brand new or you've been working on the iPhone since like it first came out. But it's just a monthly online meetup to talk to other developers. It's a great monthly online meetup to talk to developers. Honestly, folks come along and have a lot of fun. They really enjoy it. And of course, getting involved in the community, it matters, right? You know, just coming along and talking to folks meeting them, getting ideas, sharing your code, sharing your woes sometimes, <laughs> sharing your excitement. That's part of the fun, right? It's a large part of the fun. Yeah, definitely. It's fun, especially because it's a virtual online monthly meetup. So like if you don't have anybody around you, like in your current geographic area, mm. uh, we have people that are joining us from all over the world, which is awesome. Uh, we've had people at the same time joining from like Japan, Australia, like Europe, all in the exact same meeting, which is just incredible. When we send out, we have a Slack group as well. So that's just links.iosdevhappyhour.com. Let me check that though. <laughs> She's now researching yes, the links to find out the links to the links. <laughs> I just type it into, you know, it auto-completes. So that means I don't actually know what I'm typing. Yes, it's links.iosdevhappyhour.com. At the bottom, it has um, our actual invite to our Slack. But it's funny, when we send out the announcements, we actually do like at everybody in that Slack group. And it tells you before you send that message, hey, you are about to send a message to all 24... 24 time zones. Are you sure you want to send this message? Um, so it's like a slight heart attack before you send the message every time, like the announcement that, hey, we're having a new meetup. What I enjoy most is, and you'll get to there soon, hopefully, uh, is that when you press send, it says you are sending this to all 28 time zones. You're like, wait a minute, 28 time zones? Time's hard. Time oh, zones yeah. are hard. Who knew? <laughs> yes, I, I believe it is that. I, I'd have to do it to be sure, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, for the handful of folks who did not know Michaela, now you do. The first thing in the news is Apple's accessibility release. They just released a new um, press release about new accessibility features that are going to be in the next iOS. So the first one is called Point and Speak. So this is like voiceover, but in the real world, and it uses the Magnifier app. 
What do you think about that, Paul? Yeah, so I think uh, you can see the camera. Uh, you can see someone's hand reaching out over the camera. I think they're pointing at a microwave in Apple's example picture. And it's reading out various parts of the microwaves. They can figure out what things do in the real world that would otherwise be completely opaque to them. They're not marked up. There's no Braille on the microwave buttons. And so the iPhone's filling the gap, which is really transformational stuff. Yeah, and I believe it uses the LiDAR scanner to determine depth. So it kind of knows exactly where your hand is uh, when you're uh, hovering over different things too. I should hope so, because I'm not sure what else uses the LiDAR scanner right now. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it does feel a bit like this could be AR stuff, isn't it? It's a little bit AR-ish. It might be a sneak peek. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hidden well, in it, a feature. It, well, if you if you can see what you're doing in the real world with your actual hands, none of this like hold the weird it, meta Oculus controllers in your <laughs> yep. hands. Just use your actual hands to gesture. And of course, that was a big thing during the original iPhone launch. Remember the who needs a stylus ugh, line from uh, Steve Jobs? <laughs> yeah. It's the same thing. Use your fingers to point to the real world. Don't use controllers. That'd be epic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. The next feature they also released was called personal voice. So this is where if somebody has um, lost their speech over time or if they're unable to speak, it can actually recreate your voice when you type something mm, on the screen. I know. This feels like almost inches away from destroying several startups. Because I listened <laughs> to a podcast called um, Arnold's Pump Club. <laughs> it's Arnold Schwarzenegger's Pump Club. He does an email thing. And it's about a little bit of fitness, a little bit of mental health, a little bit of positivity in the world. And it's a very, very good podcast, but it's not read by Schwarzenegger. It's read by a machine recreating his voice. And it's, <laughs> you know, nine times out of ten, pretty good. And that company thought, hey, we've got some great technology here. And Apple were like, nah, let's just put that right into the OS so everyone around the whole world gets it. <laughs> What's really awesome about it, too, is that it does all of the processing using CoreML on your device, yes. too. Yes, yeah, I know. So it's private, right? Yes, that's Apple's big uh, security thing, is keeping all of that information on your device as opposed to sending it to the cloud. Yeah. And again, you know, I just start inventing things in my head. Is there, is there something in here for AR, you know? <laughs> it, it, it could be. It can recognize your voice. It knows you're saying. It can transcribe your voice, send the words across the internet and recreate it in in somewhere else, you know, or in a different language. I don't know what's possible. We only sing a tiny oh, glimpse of it here. I know. Wouldn't it be great if I could just speak to someone in Japanese? Naturally, I'm speaking English and they hear Japanese, whatever. Mm -hmm. That would just blow my mind. And yet we're suddenly, overnight, weirdly close to it. That would be amazing because I know <laughs> I know they already have the Translate app that they I remember mm. was it the la was it last year they by default installed the trans Translate app on everybody's phone. Mm -hmm. So, that could be a good feature though if, if they don't if they're not already going to do it. That is a great app idea if we get <laughs> developer access. You go, <laughs> if you're listening Apple, there's your brilliant idea for iOS 18. <laughs> well, the thing is it's like when you think about how things fit into place in retrospect, like, you know, them building Safari years before the iPhone, was like, why are you building a web browser? You use Internet Explorer at the time, right? But they mm -hmm. did, and they put the pieces in place, and it's not an accident. They're working towards a bigger goal, yep. and surprise, it comes out, and there it is. And I guess we'll find out real soon now. I believe that's also a big Steve Jobs quote of, like, looking forward, you can't connect the dots, but looking back, you can always connect them, right. something along those lines. That just catchier, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Then the other feature they release is also called live speech. So this is where you can type to speak during calls, and then this uses personal voice. So really, if anyone is kind of confused, personal voice is the real, like, the changing your voice and using your um, 
actual voice to uh, speak. And then the live speech part of that is the actual typing during the call that uses then your personal voice. Yeah, it's a bit confusing, isn't it? Because we had live captions last year and that's where it hears their voice and transcribes it instantly onto the screen. Whereas live speech is the other way around. It's type to speak back out. I guess with the default Siri voice or similar until you do personal voice and have your own incredibly I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing it because it's gonna be quite eerie right <laughs> yes it, it'll be interesting because i know that's been a thing i've seen on tiktok is the person who is like the tiktok uh type to speech like the person's voice that they use they can like speak in that kind of intonation and so like they'll sometimes do that at like the mcdonald's drive-thru or something is speak <laughs> in that like type to text voice <laughs> and the person on the other end is like what is going on? <laughs> I did see someone made a. It was maybe an example. I'm not sure, but it was a. It was an iMessage uh, app thing where you could talk and ask a question, and it asked ChatGPT the question, responded back, and got the the text back from ChatGPT, then piped it through a Steve Jobs audio generator. <laughs> so it answer as Steve Jobs, and it was it was eerie. There's no way of describing it other than that is quite eerie. So maybe this podcast will end up being written by ChatGPT, and then we'll use our voices from the episode <laughs> to make an entire episode that is not actually us talking. So now I learn you're lazy. This is what's happening, right? <laughs> On episode one. This is called one being efficient. <laughs> mm, yes. Then the next feature that they introduced is assistive access. So this one is also very interesting where it distills apps and experiences to their essential features, which really means it lowers the um, cognitive load you have to do when using your iPhone because there's a million buttons everywhere. Like I tap the Facebook, FaceTime button all the time when I'm trying to just make a call. So it lowers that uh, barrier to actually being able to do what you were trying to do. Which obviously helps a lot of people. But in that exact case, let's face it, when you press the FaceTime button by accident, your heart rate triples. It's panic straight away. No, 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 cancel. It's so embarrassing, right? No one wants that in their conscience. Uh, the screenshots again Apple have posted look look great. It like turns your, okay, admittedly $1,000 iPhone into a 1990s Nokia phone, make call, whatever. Um, but you still get all the nice things about Apple, you know, all the privacy, all the security, all the iCloud syncing, all the contact syncing, all the nice things you want are still there. Question is, will we have developer access? I guess more on that later on. Yep, we will find out. I hope so, because it's, uh, I remember I went to the Women in Apple or Women in Apple mm, event day that yes, they had. Yes. And I re specifically remember, I believe it was Linda Dong who had said it, but I'm not 100% sure. But somebody had told me, they were like, uh, building accessibility into your apps is so important. And if you ever need to talk to like your boss or management about like why it's important to build accessibility in your apps is because accessibility opens your app to more people. So why would you not want to build that into the app? Mm. Next up, we both went to Deep Dish Swift. That was in Chicago. Yes, yes. Did you have, I can't remember, did you have Deep Dish pizza before going there? No, <laughs> that was my very <laughs> first time. <laughs> What was your opinion of it? I, I can see why Italians are insulted by it. <laughs> um, you know, I, and I also see now why so many Americans call pizza pie. As a, as a yes. whole pizza, why I say it's a pizza pie. Mm -hmm. I never understood that. I say it's a pizza. Now I'm like, okay, that's a pie. That's not a pizza, that's a pie. So I, I, I get the impression now. I understand where it's coming from. It's a pie. It could also be like pizza flavored lasagna. It's kind of what it is. Yeah. So, so for folks who haven't had it before, I, I never had it before. If you're listening along, hadn't had it before, you've got to imagine a very thick pizza base, then 
an unreasonable amount of cheese, like a lot of cheese, and then a second pizza layer over the cheese to hold all together, and then a sprinkle more cheese and then tomato. And so there's a lot of cheese, but it is kind of a pie crust, quite frankly. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I can see where it's coming from. <laughs> anyway, enough about pizza. The conference. Yes, the conference itself pizza, yes. <laughs> was great. I loved how we had like an indie track on the very first day. So we got to mm. hear from developers who are full-time indie developers. Yeah, and in fact, I spoke to folks after the first day. And a huge chunk said, well, that first half day on indie stuff was so good. I've had my value for money already from the ticket price. I could just go home now and still be good. And they still had two more days to go, including your talk and my talk. <laughs> um, so that, it was that good. So that's, it's really good to see. Yeah, that, it was super exciting because it's really like seeing, wow, these people have actually made a business around just an application. So it's like, and they're also an indie, meaning for the most part, a lot of them are doing them doing this app like themselves too. Yeah. So it's like not just like, oh, Uber is a company that it's a whole company built around a single app, but it's like people have done this but they've done it all by themselves for the most part, which is amazing too. Yeah, I have heard quite a few talks from you know Ubers or similar where they're like, well, in our iOS team of 300 developers and like, oh, well, hold up, what? <laughs> How many developers do you have building your app? Whereas hearing from like uh, Curtis who works on uh, Slopes, it's him and a very small team of contractors built around him is incredible. He's built it from scratch to a really, really, industry-leading product now, which is which is great to hear. And ultimately, what I liked most was, the I mean, talks were good, everyone loves talks. Just seeing folks together again was really, really nice. You know, the US conference team was looking really quite uh, broken last year after uh, 360iDev died out, sadly. And it's back, it's back now, and it's back, and it's gonna flourish, hopefully, because people have seen People want to get together. Folks want to get together and chat and network and have fun and and share experiences together. So I'm just so glad to see it flourishing again. Yeah, definitely. That's something we have thought about with iOS Dev Happy Hour is the whole point was to socialize and talk with other developers. Mm. And we honestly kind of weren't really sure what was going to happen once the world started opening up more because it had originally started, I want to say, in September of 2020. So it was very much in the middle of... uh, the pandemic when everybody was like at home and wanting more social interaction, that's where it really like blossomed. But then the fact that it's also like kept in touch after that, or even now, almost three years later, I believe, it's like everything is still going all because of like with conferences and everything. It's we all want like social interaction and to just geek out and talk to other people about iOS development. Cause sometimes like you don't have that in the in like the real world around you, like actual humans to talk about, <laughs> not through your computer. You mean so, all your friends are muggles and they don't, yes. they don't really care about <laughs> Wi-Fi and iOS versions and stuff. I know, you're right. Of course, that is the epitome of WWDC week, right? A lot of folks get the golden ticket. Many folks don't, and they just go anyway because it's just so much fun. Yes, definitely. It's I am going to be one of those people that will be there without the golden ticket, and I love how we have just started. Everybody calls it that now because <laughs> of how the raffle system works. <laughs> but yes, I'm one of those people that's going uh, even though I don't have a ticket. But um, we ha- there's a bunch of community events going on too. There's so Iris Dev Happy Hour. We're having our IRL event because we're calling it that because we're finally having an in-person talking rather than just talking to 100 people through your computer. But there's also WWDC Community is having an event. There's going to be a concert by James Dempsey and the Breakpoints, which I saw them at 360 iDev for the first time. So I'm super excited to see that again. 
And I'm, I'm even missing some because there's so many. I had to like write them all down like in my notes, like break it up day by day being, okay, what time is every event? Can I make it to everything? I can give folks who are listening, if you, if you are coming from other than California, pro tip for you, or the West Coast Germany, pro tip for you, um, in your calendar, add a floating time zone for stuff. Don't use California or your local time zone. Otherwise, it's confusing. Floating time zone means when it's 10 a.m., it's 10 a.m. wherever you are in the world. So I put my diary in as floating so I can see it, you know, noon is lunch so-and-so, 10 is coffee so-and-so, and it all fits together neatly in my diary, and it will just transfer to California time smoothly when I go over there. Oh, that's nice. Yes, because my I've had that when I went to iOS Conf SG. Actually, we were both at iOS Conf SG earlier this year in January. (laughs) And it's yeah, I had set um, something like all the reminder. I forgot that like all the reminders in my phone and everything just shifts with the time zone. So like I was 14, 12 to 14 hours ahead of my normal time zone and everything just got jumbled and i was like i don't even know what time it is right now we are just time traveling continuously for several days <laughs> this is why i arrive in california on wednesday the 31st i've got like four or five days to catch up and get the time zone before the main event starts and that's good because you are five or six hours ahead no even more than pacific time actually eight it's like nine hours ahead eight okay yeah because i'm coming from eastern time typically and that is not too bad it's like three hours so it's when I wake up, I get to wake up like a morning, like productive person, everything you read in all those millionaire books, because I'll be waking up at like 6 a.m. But in reality, in Eastern time, it's like 9 a.m. So it's actually not terribly early. <laughs> so I just look more productive on the West Coast because I'm waking up <laughs> on like Eastern times. Okay, let's get on to our theme for this episode, which this time is how to continue learning and growing in your career. Now, this is a big topic. Lots of ideas about things to study, things to think about, people to talk to, places to go, uh, approaches to take for your life. Where can we even start here, Michaela? What's a, what's a sensible place to start with this big biggie? That is a good question. I'm kind of in this sort of step in my career now because it's I've been doing iOS development now for two years. And so it's, I can build an app. I know how to use UI table view. I can use the UI collection view. I can do some basic like Swift UI things now. So it's, I think I like to think of a lot of it as the next step is, okay, you can make an app now write code that you actually want to maintain. Because as a junior, all the code that you write, you look back on it like six months later and you're just like, oh, that, what was I thinking? This is awful. Yeah. So the bad news, Michaela, is you will always do that. <laughs> like I've been doing this for like 25 years, building software across many platforms. And I look at code from like last year, I'm like, Hudson, what were you thinking? What's this <laughs> terrible code you wrote? Because you're, you're, that's a sign you're growing, right? You're a sign you're actually mm-hmm. are growing. Yes. You look back and say, I would do that better now. And that's what I love about it too. It's like, you look back and you're, I remember one of my apps, the very first time I was making one, I was saving data to user defaults. Mm. And that's a pretty like, um, uh, one of the first things one of the first things you learn like to save data because you can just write it you don't have to use any third parties i couldn't figure out how to save data to user defaults i looked at it like three months later the reason was because i left the key blank it's i can't save data if there's no key before the key value storage and i was like why was this never working i looked at it three months later i was like oh well that's filled that in yep that it works now. yeah yeah i i, I... I learned to build UI kit apps in 2009 or so, maybe, uh, on a train journey before I had decent train internet back then. So I was on a train to my see my grandmother, basically five hours away, silently screaming to myself why things aren't working. And back then, 
interface builder was separate from Xcode of different apps to work oh, yeah. together. To pull them together. It, was, it was quite hideous. <laughs> and I remember I had no idea how uh, the Outlook connection thing worked. I just did not understand. And so when I got it wrong, and it would just crash back then, boom, <laughs> yep. missing Outlook, crash, boom, burn. I'd be like, I don't know what's wrong. I'll just delete the whole project and start again because I could not <laughs> fix it. Couldn't I couldn't Google it. I just like, what's going on? Burn it. Start again, 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 again. It was a, a hard way to learn. Oh man. I believe even nowadays, if you mess up the IB outlet, I'm pretty sure your app still crashes. Like I, I don't think that's been I resolved. haven't written UI kit in quite a while, you know. I could, so a surprising amount of time. I did it in 2020, I wanna say when they released the new UI collection view list style stuff. Mm -hmm. um, when I, th I thought, uh oh, I can see the writing on the wall here for table views. It's gonna be collection views in the future at yep. some point. Hasn't happened yet, but I think it's soon still. And I give it a try and I was like, whoa, this is actually surprisingly hard to do. You gotta put a lot of work in to get some kind of functionality in here. I miss Swift UI. Anyway, that's old <laughs> stuff. How can we learn and grow for someone like right now, they're maybe junior, maybe intermediate, maybe even senior, but they wanna carry on learning and carry on growing. What could they do? I think one of the biggest things, and especially it's kind of a hot topic right now, is different architectures. So I like to think of all architectures are really just where are you putting the code? So what is doing what? Because with MVVM or MVC, you're just changing the responsibility of the object that's doing something. So uh, doing that, it's all about like thinking instead of having a massive view controller, then figuring out, okay, what do I break out to actually start like writing more maintainable code? And then now with SwiftUI too, it's a lot of people have used MVVM, but uh, TCA, uh, the composable architecture is also starting to gain a lot of traction because we're changing where we're putting everything for like different responsibilities. But then we're also thinking about like, what is the best way for like data flow and stuff? Yeah. There's a good article I could probably link to in the show notes um, from Surush Kanlu about MVVM, kind of pointing out that there's no fixed definition of MVVM. It's not as simple as, oh, yes, that's a view model, we're done. Because you have to answer questions like, well, where do the networking code bits mm -hmm. go? Where do they go? Where does my uh, data for loading and saving of, of local options, or whatever, where does that go? Where does this go? Where does this go? And they actually, well, actually, you end up with controllers again and, <laughs> and just renamed it from view model to controller it becomes a dumping ground, right? Just dump your ground. Yeah, that can go in the view model, that's fine, and it goes, and and, and then that just, which dumping ground you choose shouldn't be your architecture choice, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's all very subjective to, typically, if you're in a company, typically it's however your company is splitting everything out. But when you're on your own, building your own app, it's up to you, and you just kind of have to make a choice and stick with it for a little bit, but you never actually, it's not a concrete choice though, which is nice because we're always changing code. So it's never done at least. I do wonder whether someone like in their own like app, just a personal app side project thought, I'm going to use Viper. <laughs> Surely no one in the history of that thought, this is a brilliant fit. This is exactly what I need here is Viper. Surely not. I think if you're, you know, building the next million dollar app idea, that's where you would start. Uh, you know, there was a good talk by uh, Greg Lotelier at DotSwift 2018, I want to say, about the stupid names to give to architects to <laughs> try and sound cool. <laughs> and Viper is an architect that kind of like, oh, Viper sounds good. Whereas MVVM <laughs> doesn't sound quite so good. It doesn't good. make a word. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting for me that um, the things I think about when I talk to someone about learning and growing their career, none of them are technical. Not a single one. I'm like, oh, yeah, you want to learn uh, 
TCA or MVVM or whatever. I think it's highly non-technical stuff because you know it's a fairly common uh, uh, career flow in our industry when you graduate from boot camp or university or get your first job, whatever it is, uh, college. Um, we call you like oh, you're 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 the code monkey. You're a junior <laughs> developer. You sit there and you write code. That's what you do. You, you you're given work to do. You do the code. You pass on. Give more code. Write the code. Blah, 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 blah. And then as you progress, you start thinking about well, how does the rest of the project work? And eventually, when you're what I consider a senior developer, you start thinking about you know business impacts and HR impacts and people impacts and blah, blah, blah. it's more complicated than just like write code, write code, write code, write code. And so I always think about um, encouraging folks to go and look elsewhere. You know, I said I deep dish Swift to folks. Don't assume that in that room are all the good ideas. You know, <laughs> Swift and iOS and Swift UI and Apple, of course we like them very much. It's our thing. But if you think Xcode has every best feature of every IDE ever, <laughs> you're missing out because there are great ideas in the Java world, believe it or not, in the JavaScript world, believe it or not. They have great ideas. And if we look at them and basically steal them, <laughs> steal them, wholeheartedly steal them, openly steal them, we'll do better for it. We'll be better off for it because... Uh, they have ideas and we can get their ideas and adapt them to our ideas and give them our ideas and it mixes together and makes everyone better. And so I encourage folks to carry on learning, but don't just stay fixed on 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 SwiftUI. Look at Python, look at Rust, have a look around. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Cause yeah, for sure seeing, cause that's where like Swift was created from like Objective-C before that too. So it's like, we didn't always have Swift and Swift is still also out of all the languages, even you mentioned with like Java and Python and JavaScript, Swift is like the newest language out of all of those too. Somehow. Like Swift is not even like 10 years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's still a, a baby, quite frankly. Uh, and you're right, Objective-C of course is very old, but that was inspired by Smalltalk and lots of research. And so there's a long history of things being adapted and learned from. And uh, Greg Hyo on Apple's Photos team said, when he reads these Swift evolution proposals, the bit he loves most is the alternative considered section, where you look at other options that are possible to them. They look at things like, well, how does how does PHP solve this? How does Python solve this? And, and it just shows them other input from other languages. They're like, this is how it's in C-sharp. Cool, but here's the downsides, here's the upsides, and they reflect on that and hopefully synthesize out of that a great feature. Another thing, too, to think about when you're going really from more of a junior developer, just learning iOS development, going into more senior, is thinking about testing. Mm. Because like you had mentioned, we have to start thinking of the business results and business impact. And if our code constantly keeps breaking, but we don't have anything like tests to surround it and like let us know that it's breaking, it starts to become an issue of it impacts the business and the bottom line of our app is breaking every five seconds, and that no, can't happen. That's not a good look, is it? Let's face it. <laughs> I said I've never been more grateful to past Paul than when I've sat down and write some great, great tests. When I've really thought I've got a whole day, two days, I'm going to write some killer tests, <laughs> and it it lasts you years, and it catches mistakes all the time. And occasionally, I hear folks talk about, "Oh yeah, we're going to refactor this, that, and the other." I'm like, "Well, you haven't got any tests." And refactoring means you had this behavior, you've changed the code, and you still have the same behavior. How can you prove you've refactored? I mean, you're rewriting it, yes, but mm -hmm. not refactoring it. You're just 
futzing with the code. You can't prove it's the same result. And that's a dangerous place to be. Yeah, definitely. It's And I what I always thought was interesting too, because I'm also just starting to get into testing, is how many different kinds of tests there are. <laughs> we have unit tests, we have UI tests, there's integration tests, mm. and those are just like three. There's a lot more kinds too. We call it a testing pyramid normally, where lots of these and then very few of these, and it does feel a nice sort of pyramid. That's the goal. Um, Weirdly, though, I think in the iOS world, we take testing pretty laxly. Is that fair to say? I think we're not particularly serious about testing. Compared mm -hmm. to other platforms, other languages and similar, you often see whole projects with, with no tests. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes it's kind of an effect of that we're mobile developers. So like with mobile development, we are always so controlled by Apple and Google and how they work. We also kind of work a little bit differently too. So because of that, with testing, it's we don't really have any iOS apps for the most part. There are some that are like life, uh, like life or death situations. So like if your iOS app doesn't work, oh no, Instagram didn't load my photo. Like that's all you get. It's nothing like very uh, dramatic if your program or if you're like your app doesn't uh, function the exact way that it's supposed to. That might even be in the app store review guidelines, you know, like no life or death. Is it really? You know, no like air traffic control kind of apps maybe a pro i think it used to be i'm not sure it still is there anymore but so it links to my own theory about this which is that um the app store was kind of the early app store you know ios 2 there were lots of fart apps and similar <laughs> right it was a comedy way to make some money quickly and as a result it's relatively immature in many respects there aren't many apps in the apps that have been around 10 years whereas on mac os or you know the web some web has been around a very very long time and so i think we're still coming into maturity in that front with testing tools. And I certainly hope, uh, more or less later perhaps, that Apple release increasing testing tools at WDC. We'll see. Yeah, we've had uh, later releases too with the test plans in Xcode, so you can execute tests because you're supposed to too, is execute them always not in the same order to actually yes. ensure that they pass. Because if you execute them always one, two, three, if you accidentally run a test that depends on another, which you're not supposed to do, mm. is that your uh, tests would break if they're executed in a different order. So when they came out with test plans, that like started to get into and also started to get into Xcode Cloud with um, the whole started start getting into the entire CI/CD pipeline of like ensuring that you're writing a really good like robust app too. And for anyone who's also listening and doesn't know, like CI/CD is continuous integration or continuous deployment, or also I think delivery is another way I've heard of it for the CD part of it. But it's all about a pipeline of, okay, once I finish building my app, how do I actually go and put it on the app store for a solo iOS developer? That's pretty much, okay, I create the archive, upload it to App Store Connect, that's it. But in big organizations, you have to do a lot more. A lot more. And you know, folks, if you listen to this thinking, God, architecture, testing, CICD, I know none of this. You know, the biggest advice I have for folks is if you work for a company, ask them, is there a learning budget? You know, you don't know something great. There are tons of books on, on testing iOS apps there. There's one from John Reed, which is excellent. I have one. Um, and, and they teach you how to do testing in Swift. So if you're thinking, I can't do tests at all, get one of these books, get one of these video courses, and, and they'll help you get moving with them. There are books on architecture out there. There are books on uh, all these advanced topics. And so if you just ask your company, hey, listen, can I have a hundred bucks a year? Not a lot of money, right? That'll get you two books, three books a year. Sit down and read it. 
If you meet a senior developer who's not reading books, they're not learning stuff, what are they doing? They, <laughs> they know everything. <laughs> they, 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 they've mastered Swift and Swift UI. No, no one's done that. We're all learning all the time. So get out there and, and try and learn. Go to conferences like Deep Dish, go and get a book or a video course and and, and uh, get on it, get on the case basically, try and learn. Yeah, definitely. Because I like to think too, it's um, you can't be in the tech industry without wanting to learn. So that's always something every a lot of interviewers say that they look for at junior developers is willingness to learn. Because hmm. when you really think about it, the iPhone's been out since 2007. Technically, it's 2008, I think, that you could actually develop apps for the App Store. So the most experience somebody can be as an iOS developer, I think I just did the math, is like 16 years. So nobody in this industry has more than 16 years of experience specifically developing iOS apps, which when you think about it, that's not a long time. And it's changed dramatically in that 16 years too. So we're all still learning. So there's always something to learn. So when you see all these topics, you can, I like to think when I was in uh, an internship is you just hear these words. So you don't like fully understand it, but you've heard somebody say the word architecture. You've heard them say MVVM or Viper. So you're like, oh yeah, I have heard of that. I don't know what the concept exactly is, but then when you start to talk to other iOS developers at conferences or iOS Dev Happy Hour, then you just keep kind of hearing some specific words. And then that's when you can be like, oh, I've heard this. Somebody mentioned this like several different times. Maybe I should then go and look up what exactly is this topic that people are talking about too. Yes, but you're right. The, the attitude to learning is key and they will look for it. And I've told folks before, if someone asks you a question, so what do you think about MVVM or whatever, if you don't know the answer, don't try and make up the answer. Don't try and, you know, internally chat GPT the answer, right? <laughs> Just say, listen, I know very little about that, but I'd love to learn. Mm -hmm. And that matters way more than knowing everything because they, they they can teach you things. They can teach you in BVM and testing. They can't teach you to have a learning attitude. Yes, you know, definitely. They can't teach you not to be a jerk in the office, right? So showing across these basic skills matters. Mm -hmm. Definitely, for sure. So the open and palette of this episode is, what are we looking forward to the most at DubDub23? And so we asked all the listeners on all the social medias, Twitter, Mastodon, everything. And some of the responses are things that I didn't know because I like to try to not hear rumors. So when I see something, I'm actually surprised about it because I remember one year I saw something and like all the rumors spoiled everything. So I was like, this is no fun. When you know the when you know it's gonna happen, it's not as fun. But imagine if you were the one working on that thing as well. You've spent the last sort of two, three years working on, I don't know, haptics and it's leaked at the last second. You're like, no. <laughs> so yeah, it's I like to not hear the rumors, but these these thankfully everyone's response was nobody's spoiling anything. So it's it's okay. I'll read them out for you. <laughs> but first of all, though, Sean Allen had said that he wants to see Apple, uh, what they're doing with AI in large language models, which is also called LLM. And he's hoping that we get accessibility features with this. So the accessibility voice feature, and maybe that's really, like you had said earlier, Paul, a small glimpse into what they're going to be doing with AR. Yeah. So for folks listening along, uh, large language models, LLMs, think of ChatGPT. Okay. That's what it is. It's, it's been a long time studying billions and billions of documents and blog posts and podcast transcriptions, yada, yada, yada. Try and learn about the world and uh, as a result can now speak back to you. And I guess we're gonna we're gonna see Apple have been doing some, I think, incredible AR stuff for a long time. Things like joint detection in your body and similar. But 
it hasn't really caught on in the same way that ChatGPT has. Like ChatGPT, it was December, right? Last year, 2022, <laughs> yeah. it launched and it's like, what just happened there? You know, schools and colleges scrambling, workplaces being redefined. It's changing our world very quickly. And despite Apple doing a lot of work previously for years now, hasn't really caught on quite in the same way. So I'm hoping we'll see something big but I, I'm a bit worried they might have been caught by surprise. They're busy doing the AR stuff and and maybe their long-standing and understandable need to ship something perfect, not good, might slightly work against them in a really rapidly evolving space like AI. Yeah, I could definitely see that because I always think of like how most of the apps on our phone don't get updated besides the iOS update. Like, I think I just saw the developer app just got updated, getting ready for like dub yep. dub 23. But most of like the core iOS or by Apple iOS apps, they're just updated once a year. Mm. So I'm interested to see if they actually do something to change that. Cause like you find a bug in say the phone application or something that's not gonna get updated for <laughs> a whole year. So maybe if they'll change it or something to actually push updates, not with the whole OS, but as separate apps. Maybe. We just saw uh, Microsoft announcing a build, right? That they've built AI into Windows. And, and it sounds like, oh, I can just talk to ChatGPT in Windows. No, no, no. They've built it into Windows. You can ask it questions like, how do I change my Wi-Fi settings? And it'll show you clickable links to take you right to the part of the UI which jumps in to do it for you. So it'll help you actually solve problems. And that's impressive. I, I was like, okay, fair enough. You know, <laughs> chatting to, chatting about you know history projects, whatever, at school, one thing, actually solving problems for people. At the end of the day, most users don't actually want to use computers. They want to they want to do a document. They want to do a slideshow. They don't actually use Mac OS or use iOS. Mm -hmm. And so if, if AI can be a, a stepping stone to make the apps nicer to use, that'd be very welcome indeed. Next, Clement Strasser also mentions that they hope that the Assistive Access API could get opened and maybe even just work out of the box with SwiftUI like other accessibility features. So that's the one that simplifies the uh, phone or tablet UI down to like just big buttons. Yes. Take photo, make FaceTime call. He, he's right. If it is, I mean, it wouldn't work out of the box because it would override all your settings and stuff. But if it's like <laughs> an environment key, is it enabled or not? If it is enabled, show this UI. If it isn't, do that UI. It would just switch between them automatically. That could be very nice if it is that simple. And I hope it is that simple. We're going to find out, you know, in two weeks, but um, it ought to be that simple. That's for sure. Apple, if you're listening, get on it. Yep, definitely. <laughs> like I had mentioned earlier, it's what really stuck with me was making your app more accessible to users literally makes your app accessible and more people will be using your application. So it's why wouldn't you want to build accessibility into your app like from the beginning? I also hope, and I don't want to, this might sound like a cheap shot to people who are doing their best, but I think sometimes you have to have some empathy for users to want to build a feature. Uh, and sometimes the empathy can be lacking a little bit. Like, you know, Blue Sky, when it shipped, the social media thing had terrible voiceover support. It was basically impossible to use in voiceover. Um, and if that developer who, who worked on our team who worked on it, if, if they had a a brother or sister or child or whatever who was blind, who relied on voiceover, they'd have, they'd have fixed it a lot earlier, I feel. I feel, I, I, don't, I don't know, obviously. And uh, ultimately, I'm not sure how many, how many blind friends you have who use voiceover full-time, maybe not very many, but most of us have relatives or grandparents or similar who would appreciate the simpler 
uh, assistive access API available to them. And so I'm hoping a little bit empathy is easier because we, we all know someone who's a little bit older and just wants to make a FaceTime call easily. So I, I don't know, maybe it's a bit of a cheap shot, but it feels like it would get more adoption of this API if it's... Mm -hmm. Yep, definitely. Because it's developers. <laughs> developers are lazy. <laughs> I like, was, she said that. No, I did not say that. <laughs> I'm generalizing. We all copy and paste from Stack Overflow. So yes, like, you do. You don't you? <laughs> I don't believe it. <laughs> so because of that, yeah, just making all the APIs easier to use makes it so that people will use them too. Yes, correct. Then Yash had mentioned that they want the using the new at back deployed. Uh, is that a modifier or a function for implementing SwiftUI features in old in the older OSs? Would be really interesting. So that's it's actually a Swift language feature. Okay. Uh, so the option is when you're saying uh, I have got this feature in my code, a, a method, for example, or some properties available, something like here's running some code, uh, and I I know it'll be available in newer versions of the OS. It's built into the OS completely, but in older versions, the OS is not there. And so for older versions, copy this code into the library, into my app, use it from my copied version. If it's a newer than iOS 16, 17, whatever it to be, use system's own version, which would be the same thing. There's a way of making availability to system stuff back to older versions of the OS. That's the idea. It sounds simple. It sounds brilliant. <laughs> oh, we can just put SwiftUI back to iOS 9. I don't know. <laughs> It's actually trickier than it sounds because it only works on functions, I believe. You cannot back deploy types. You can't say, oh, this struct is now available in iOS 15 or 14 or 13 or this you know, class, only functions. And so uh, I gave an example on uh, what's new in Swift 5.8 about, I think it was like the uh, font design modifier <laughs> in SwiftUI to make it rounded or whatever. A nice simple modifier, like oh, it should actually be back deployable. Nope. <laughs> Internally behind the scenes, it's got a new font design struct type that cannot be back deployed because it's a struct on a function. And so, Ooh, interesting. I hope Yash, you're right. We're gonna find out, but it's challenging. It was challenging. Yeah, definitely. That's. I know that was one of the things holding a lot of people back from really getting into Swift UI was that the experience of writing it when we were in iOS 13 when it came out, and then 14, 15, now 16. <laughs> <laughs> Paul still has uh, chills. From it, it doesn't bear thinking about like before state object. Oh, good grief! Ah. <laughs> Sarah Reichel is also looking forward to having GitHub Copilot in Xcode because they have been working on having JavaScript or using JavaScript with GitHub Copilot. So if we could get that in Xcode, that would be awesome. Xcode Copilot. This is just laziness again, isn't it? <laughs> 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 I don't know. And so first up, if you haven't heard of Sarah, folks listening in, Sarah has a wonderful book uh, on building macOS apps. It's from the Ray Wendelick folks. Might be, is it Codeco? Codeco. Codeco. Those people. Those, yeah, Codeco. Um, those now. She has a book on building macOS apps. It's very, very good. Um, and obviously it works. She's, she's right. Because a lot of mundane things, you can just say, hey, just give me this function real fast. Fine, the architecture, testing, and the complicated stuff you do yourself. But if you can do the mundane stuff, would you use it? Would you use Xcode Copilot? Yeah, I think it'd be really interesting with some uh, simple things that you do all the time once you really get into iOS development and like straightforward stuff like writing a network request. For most, what is it? I think somebody one time told me early, they were like, 
all apps are really just fancy JSON viewers because we're just displaying <laughs> JSON data on the screen. That's what every single app does. So writing network requests is something that you end up doing all the time. So using GitHub, uh, GitHub Copilot, and then possibly if it's integrated into Xcode, we would never have to write another network request ever mm. again. <laughs> well, I guess if Apple did it, it's built into Xcode directly. What I'd like to see is not just GitHub Copilot. I'd like to see, hey, this is the current best way of doing this thing. Because if you get up Copilot, you're going to get, you know, the old, uh, you remember having to call resume on later tasks or similar, <laughs> you always forget. And it was like, why is my network not firing? You want the new async await stuff? Do you want the modern API? It would be very nice, particularly if you could say, hey, here's a bunch of code. Please bring it up to Swift 5.9. That'd be, that'd be nice. And Andres Ragoza they're looking forward to easy keychain setup with SwiftUI, which I would absolutely love that. Well, <laughs> what about you, Paul? Tell folks, honestly, they need to know what is the keychain? Why does it matter so much? So if anyone doesn't know um, and hasn't used keychain, so keychain is where we can save passwords or any kind of sensitive data. So you don't want to save that just in like something like user defaults or app storage because that's not secure. People can just end up reverse engineering your app and easily get access to things that are in like that specific part of iOS. So when you save data in Keychain, that's where it is actually secure. And I believe it's also connected to people's iCloud account too, right? Yeah, so when you read about the uh, secure enclave, which Apple used to talk about a lot, not so much anymore, but it's a, it's a T2 chip on, the, on most phones and laptops and similar. Uh, that's the secure, separate area of store information. It's fully encrypted, you know, industry strength encryption. That's the keychain. User defaults are just a bunch of strings on, on disk. <laughs> it's not safe at all. And apps have been busted in the past. I think Starbucks is the most prominent example of storing passwords and user defaults. And then folks finding it. And then I know your password. I can I can get coffee for free. Hooray. <laughs> um, um, but yeah. So yeah. And the weird thing is, you're right. It's really important. It's, you know, do not save user credentials or other sensitive information like, you know, uh, the birthdays or any health information in user defaults. Just don't do it. And yet, it's bizarrely hard to use. The, the keychain, if you do it yourself, you will get it wrong. <laughs> you will not use it well. You've got to use one of these libraries. There are so many wrappers around mm -hmm. it to make it swifty because it's so easy to screw up. And so, yeah, it, it's astonishing to me that you can just say, app storage, this thing, and it's so easy to do, but it's the wrong approach. <laughs> and they've made it easy to choose the wrong approach. And that's a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. Yeah, if we could just get something like a property wrapper, and then that will always save to Keychain, read and write securely, that would be amazing. So I have wondered in the past why some things don't work with property wrappers. For example, app storage doesn't talk to Codable. <laughs> just doesn't do it. You can't you can't use Codable information with app storage. And you should be able to, app, you know, app storage, here's my user settings struct, save the whole struct away, please, whatever you want to do, boom, just do it doesn't support it. And it's frustrating because we, <laughs> we use Codable everywhere. And, and But the, in that exact example, apparently the reason is because uh, decoding and encoding can throw errors. Mm. And so it's not something that easily can be handled in a, in a simple property wrapper. How do you handle the errors? What are you going to do? I suspect, I don't know, the keychain similar, like fail to write, fail to read, fail to unlock. I don't know. How do you handle those errors? Whereas user defaults should always work. And so maybe it's That's that. a good guess. I don't guess. really know. But that, that sounds like a good logical reason why. I remember reading about uh, someone, about the Swift team and how they handle stuff. And they said that 
This is badly paraphrased. The Swift team think up some incredibly hard to do feature and then walk through walls until it's accomplished. They accomplish really impossible things by brute force throwing <laughs> people and, and smart people at the problem until it's solved. Swift UI team, you're very, very smart. Make at keychain a thing. And also next, Michael License is wanting something that I also want because it is near and dear to my heart right now for an app I'm trying to solve, or like a problem I'm trying to solve. But he wants a Swifty version of a SQL-based persistence and syncing framework that is not core data. <laughs> <laughs> and that last part's really important. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have an app right now. I actually use SQLite to begin with, and now I'm trying to think of what's the best way to take that to the cloud. So if anybody listening has any idea, please DM me. because I will take any answer right now because I still have not figured out what the best way is. But I know a lot of people love Core Data and then love using CloudKit, but everybody says Core Data is not very Swifty. So making that like easier to use, easier to understand for, it's funny, he also says specifically a SQL-based persistence. So we're not talking about NoSQL ways of storing data like JSON data, but a swiftier way to write persistence would be great. I, I think most people who use core data don't really care that SQL behind it. It's there, it's being used, we know it's being used, it's backed by SQLite, um, but I'm not sure people necessarily care. If it works locally, works in CloudKit, people are just happy. The main problem I had is, is that core data has had its day, quite frankly. <laughs> it, it was very, very, very good in the early 2000s. It was still good 2010, 2012, 2013. It has not gone across to Swift very well. The whole NS managed stuff is magic. It's need for optionals everywhere is magic. <laughs> and people just want something simpler. There are too many ways to trip up with core data and I'm keen to see it not replaced but at least become the UI kit of the equation like Swift UI is a layer over Swift they haven't written a whole thing from scratch Swift UI <laughs> talks to UI kit talks to app kit talks to I guess watch kit behind the scenes don't replace UI kit just make a layer over it that for core data would be very very nice indeed if they could pull it off yeah, I would also I would just love to see that because just making it easier to write an iOS app is great because it makes it easier for then anybody to write iOS apps when one of the first things you'll start getting into when you go from a tutorial to making your own app, the next question is always, okay, where do I save this data that we're talking about? Yeah, I know. Like whatever your app does, that's the next immediate question that everyone has. Yeah, uh, even just last year, I was talking to the Swift UI team uh, about this and I was saying things like, we know we can use app storage for, uh, for strings, whatever, we can use codable for structs. But what did you do with like colors? Because you can have a color picker, you can pick a color, but you can't save it anywhere because it's not codable. <laughs> it doesn't work with app storage. You can't even read the red, green, and blue components out. You've got to bounce it to a UI color, then make a bunch of CG float references and copy into there. <laughs> it's absolutely hideous because you want to save your data. It's just a natural thing to want to do, stash it away somewhere. And core data has been a standard for a long time. And I'm hoping, perhaps against hope, that with async await, just right there in the language <laughs> these days, if your local database requests, your fetches are asynchronous, then going to CloudKit is instant. It's async anyway, the code does not change. Oh, you've checked the box saying CloudKit, boom, it just works in CloudKit. No extra work required. That'd be super nice. Oh, that sounds amazing. 
I, I get the impression we're going to see an AR AR helmet. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, give us quad data, UI, please. Like, oh, how about an AR helmet? <laughs> that sounds like Apple. <laughs> but then next, Mark Powell, he's wondering uh, if the rumors about widgets coming to watchOS come true, he'd be interested in seeing what can we do with that? This is one I actually haven't heard of, of having just better widgets within watchOS. Is that, is that what the rumor is? I don't look at rumors either. I also hate rumors. <laughs> I actually hate rumors. And not, that spoils it, but I feel bad for the engineers. I feel really bad for the team who worked on this stuff, so I avoid all rumors. There are there are good widgets on, on your watch. I've built widgets for the watch. They're pretty good. You can't do a clock yet. You can't replace a clock face with your mm-hmm. own stuff, which is frustrating a lot of people. But... You know, I, I, any new watch where stuff's welcome at this point. I'm happy to see widgets. <laughs> yeah, I always liked how the watch, when they was it came out with widgets, they said it was glanceable information. So they specifically said that it's not mini apps on your phone. So like even with a watch, then especially it's it's even more glanceable because you just like check the time real quick, like look at it for half a second and then it's away. And so like you may look at a widget for half a second. So I'd be interested to see what, because I don't watch, yeah, watch or listen to rumors. It's like what the rumor exactly is for what's coming. <laughs> because if you're only glancing at your wrist for like half a second, what are we wanting to see out of that? Yeah. I, I did a book on watchOS for SwiftUI. And um, I tell folks at the beginning that writing a watchOS app is like writing a haiku. <laughs> you've got to get a lot of meaning to a very short space. And, you know, for your watch, you've got a tiny slice of time, under two seconds, right? Mm-hmm. You've got a tiny screen space, potentially just like, you know, a, a cm squared or 2cm squared, not a lot of space or whatever in inches land. Um, <laughs> plus, you've got a, a fairly underpowered device, you know, a small CPU, small amount of RAM. You can't do a lot. Can you build something great with those constraints? I, it's like a puzzle. <laughs> so the question is, here, what are you looking forward to? You want most of obviously no rumors, but WW's coming soon, less than two weeks for us to record this. I am looking, if the headset does come out, that is something I'm looking towards because I have an app idea that I've been sitting on, like I could totally make it in AR kit, but if I had a headset, it could be even more fun because it's a game kind of thing. So it's, I don't want to spoil it. If it comes out, then <laughs> then you'll hear about it because my goal is to try, I've tried this every year. It's been my goal. So maybe this year will be the year I actually do it. It's, I want to try to make one of those apps that come out like day one out of the gate, yes. iOS 17 with some brand new API feature. Um, I think at this point I'm like, okay, I'm experienced enough. I can somewhat read Apple documentation. I want to make an app with whatever the new API is. So if it ends up being um, the AR headset, that would be great. If it ends up being accessibility, it's I don't have my own apps, but even I know one app when iOS 13 came out, um, I think it was called like Semantic Colors with all the different colors that we have um, defined by Apple for light and dark mode, because I I remember when that came out, um, somebody just made like a utility app that just showed you what all those semantic colors are. So you could literally just see them on your Mm. phone for what uh, it is in light mode and what it is in dark mode. And it's like not a popular app for users, but developers love this app because you could really see what the differences were. So making some kind of app, day one on the App Store sounds great. If it's reality kit, AR kit, that's great. Um, if not, then I'll do something else. I want to see Apple give us straight to the camera. Listen, folks, Swift 6 is coming next year. It's going to break all your projects here, 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 and here. What we recommend you do is this, this, and this. 
now to get ready for the massive breakage because it will break <laughs> a lot of code. Yep. I know that. Things are changing in Swift 6. Big things are changing. Tell us now. Let's work towards over a year as opposed to double 2024. Hurrah! <laughs> Swift 6 is here. Like, oh my God, catching fire. Uh, just a bit of warning, you know? A gentle introduction would be nice. And with that, let's end with one of the top feature requests that I also have as well, which Roddy Munro had said was, he just wants an Xcode version that works reliably. And with that, we come to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening, folks. Hope you enjoyed us being back again. Our next open ballot, by the way, is going to be what is still missing from SwiftUI. And I'm saying that knowing WWDC is about to happen. Want to think about this after iOS 17 has been announced. If you've seen what's changed, what is still missing from SwiftUI? Are there specific things you want here? You can't go back to an older iOS version, for example. What's holding you back from writing SwiftUI full-time? If you enjoy the episode, go subscribe. Tell your friends to subscribe. And of course, leave a review, please. If we read them all, it does matter very much. Take care, folks. See you next time. Bye.